This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This this is the second episode of the third season. Today, inshallah, we will be introducing Ziyad ibn Abihi, who was Muawiyah's governor of Basra. Muawiyah did have other governors, as you will see. But uh, Ziyad ibn Abihi was a special character, quite special, as you shall shall soon see. In, shall soon see, inshallah. Tongue twister there. Okay, now some of the topics discussed today are um, somewhat adult topics. I don't know if you necessarily want your child hearing them. There's nothing really bad, but you may have to do a little bit of explanation for very young children. I'll let you figure that one out. But uh, just want to let you know, yeah, this might not be a show for young kids. If this is real history. There is some brutality in uh, some of these stories. Uh, so I'll let you make up uh, your mind how much discretion you want to use for young children. Once again, it's nothing really, really bad or gory or anything like that. But uh, it may not be for your child, per se. Anyway... Uh, inshallah, you will still enjoy the show. So hopefully everything will be okay. Uh, you can support the show, uh, the Islamic History Podcast, the Islamic History Podcast. Let me get the name of my own show correct. You may support the show at patreon.com slash Islamic History. You can make a pledge there. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. This will be season three, episode two, Ziyad and Basra. Prologue Kufa, five years ago The situation was grim, but there was still hope. No matter what Muawiyah did, Ali would always have Iraq. Who can we send to Fars? Ali asked. Ali ibn Abi Talib had already lost Egypt to Muawiyah's general, Ahmad ibn al-As. The Syrians defeated and killed Ali's governor and stepson, Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. They further desecrated the governor's body by stuffing it into a donkey carcass and lighting it on fire. Things had gotten worse as Muawiyah grew bolder and launched attacks deeper and deeper into Ali's territory. These attacks from Muawiyah weren't large-scale invasions. They were more like pinpricks meant to distract and confuse Ali. They were coming so fast, Ali could barely keep up with them. 6,000 Syrians attacked Ali's garrison in western Iraq. After driving them off, another 1,700 Syrians attacked Bedouins in northern Arabia. Three months later, 3,000 Syrians plundered territory in central Arabia. These quick attacks damaged Ali's reputation. They showed he was weak and could not protect his people. And on top of all this, he had to deal with yet another rebellion, this time in Fars in eastern Iran. This was a second uprising in less than a year. Ali knew Muawiyah was behind the first one, 
but this new one in farce was caused by locals taking advantage of the situation. Ziad is just the man for this, replied Ali's general. You should send him to Faris. Ali knew who he was talking about. Ziad had helped put down the first rebellion instigated by Muawiyah's spies in Basra. That he did so with very few casualties was even more impressive. Ibn Abbas, Ali's governor of Basra, agreed with the general. He is my deputy in Basra, Ibn Abbas said. I trust him with the people and the treasury when I am away. He is definitely a man who stands for what he believes in, the general added. And when he sets out to do something, he always gets it done. Ali did not need any more convincing. Very well, he said. The job is his. The Jizya It is a common misunderstanding that the Muslim Arabs who conquered the lands of Syria and Persia simply adopted the existing administrative structures of the Romans and Sassanids. However, modern scholarship brings evidence of something different. It appears the Arabs brought their own financial system out of the deserts and adapted it to the new empire they held. This is most clearly evidenced in the Islamic system of taxation. The Islamic jizya, or non-Muslim tax, is often portrayed negatively as a tribute to the conquering Muslims. Certainly, the Quran discusses it in an aggressive tone. Fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day, and who do not forbid what Allah and his messenger had made forbidden, and do not adopt the religion of truth from those who were given the scripture until they paid the jizya willingly and are humbled. Chapter 9, verse 29 At its root, the jizya is simply a tax, similar to the zakat, which is a sort of charitable tax. However, the zakat has a spiritual and religious aspect. The root word of zakat is zakaya, meaning to purify. When Muslims pay zakat, they are purifying their wealth. But since non-Muslims do not share the same beliefs, they can't be asked to spiritually purify their wealth. The root word of jizya is jaza'a, meaning to recompense or to pay back. A related phrase that Muslims use is jazakullahu khair, meaning may God pay you back with good. The jizya is a tax paying the government back for protection and the services it provides. Muslim scholars have debated about who should pay the jizya. A minority have proposed that only the people of the scripture, that is, Christians and Jews, must pay jizya. Others must either convert to Islam or leave the area. But historically, it has been more common to apply the jizya to all non-Muslim inhabitants of an area regardless of their faith. The Zoroastrians of Persia paid the jizya during the time of the righteous caliphs. Many centuries later, the Hindus of the Indian subcontinent paid jizya as well. The Quran does not specify how much the jizya should be. Generally, that is left up to the Muslim government to decide. For the righteous caliphs and the rulers of the early Umayyad dynasty, this system worked well. The Muslims were a ruling minority and the non-Muslims living under them paid to keep the system running. But as the Umayyad rulers became more extravagant, this system began to break down. 
This was further accelerated by the rapid growth of Islam in the empire. The Muslims did not remain a minority for long. Over the years, their non-Muslim subjects converted to Islam. When they did, the Umayyads were faced with a problem. Initially, it was easy to tell who was Muslim and who was not. All of the Arabs were Muslim, and all of the non-Arabs were not. Therefore, non-Arabs paid jizya, and Arabs paid zakat. But this line began to blur as more non-Arabs became Muslim. The government was receiving double the tax income from these non-Arab Muslims. The new Muslims were religiously obligated to pay zakat, yet the Umayyad government did not relieve them of the jizya their Christian and Zoroastrian forefathers used to pay. And as the caliphs became more corrupt, they found it impossible to reverse this trend. Their lifestyles required the double taxation of this new class of Muslim. Naturally, this frustrated these new Muslims. This discriminatory practice brought social upheaval that would ultimately lead to the downfall of the Umayyads. Abdullah ibn Amir Abdullah ibn Amir had many things going for him. He was a companion of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He had previous administrative experience, and he was from Banu Umayyah. Yet, despite all of these positive factors, things just weren't going right for him as the governor of Basra. The criminal element had taken over Basra. People were complaining that Abdullah ibn Ahmed would not amputate the hands of thieves. Abdullah ibn Ahmed readily admitted this shortcoming. I know these people personally, he lamented. How can I look a man in the eyes knowing I've amputated their brother's or their father's hands? Caliph Muawiyah was growing frustrated with the bad reports coming out of Basra. But it was Abdullah ibn Amir's bungling of a rebellion in Khorasan that sealed the deal for Muawiyah. Khorasan was notoriously difficult to govern and the local tribesmen did not pay their taxes willingly. They eventually rebelled and the sub-governor fled to Basra hoping for reinforcements. Instead, Abdullah ibn Amir, who thought the sub-governor had abandoned the city out of cowardice, had him arrested, flogged, and thrown into prison. The sub-governor's family and supporters complained to Muawiyah, who became convinced that Abdullah ibn Amir had to go. And Muawiyah knew who he wanted in Basra, but he had to move carefully. He could not just fire his cousin, who also happened to be Sahaba, and replace him with some unknown fatherless bastard who used to work for Ali. Muawiyah had to be patient. He quietly dismissed Abdullah ibn Amir and appointed a minor Syrian official to take over as interim governor of Basra. Just like Muawiyah planned, the Syrian official proved incapable of managing Basra. Within four months, Muawiyah dismissed him as well. Now he was free to appoint the man he really wanted in charge of Basra. The Hudud When most people think of the Sharia, or Islamic law, the first thing that comes to mind are harsh, outdated punishments. The most famous example is the amputation of the thief's hand. This punishment is mentioned in the Quran. 
And the thief, both male and female, cut off their hands, a reward for what they've earned, and a deterrent from Allah. And Allah is mighty and wise. Chapter 5, verse 38 There is little doubt that this is a harsh penalty by today's standards. However, we must remember the law was meant to be a deterrent. At the time the Qur'an was revealed to Prophet Muhammad, amputation was a fairly common punishment for stealing. Other forms of punishment for stealing included beating, slavery, and even death. It is more accurate to think of the Qur'an as establishing a limit for the punishment of theft. This becomes more evident when we consider the Arabic word for punishments, hudud, has the same root as the word limit. There are several conditions that must be met before amputation is carried out. The stolen item must have been secured and put away. There must be at least two witnesses to the crime. The value of the stolen item must be above a certain amount. Even with these limitations, the government or judge may choose not to apply that particular punishment. When Syria was struck with famine during the caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab, he suspended the hudud for stealing. Finally, not all thefts are treated equally. Contrary to popular opinion, shoplifting and stealing food does not bring amputation. And if the owner of the stolen item gives it to the thief, then the punishment is averted. Similar to the jizya, the hudud should be considered more of a guideline. Considering the many limitations, most forms of theft would not even qualify for amputation. Ziyad ibn Abihi The man Muawiyah wanted to govern Basra was Ziyad ibn Abihi. Ziyad ibn Abihi was a red-faced man with a white, triangular-shaped beard and a right eyelid that drooped lower than the left. Along with Muawiyah, Amr ibn As, and Murida ibn Shu'bah, Ziyad was known as one of the four clever Arabs. He was famous for three things. His outstanding oratory skills, his ability to manifest order out of abject chaos, and his heavy-handed style of government. Ziyad was born in the town of Ta'if near Mecca around the same time Prophet Muhammad made the hijrah to Medina. His mother, Sumeya, was a member of the Thaqif tribe. He has been known as Ziyad ibn Sumeya and later in life Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan. Aisha, the Prophet's wife, politely called him Ziyad ibn Abihi or Ziyad, the son of his father. And that is how he is most commonly known today. Some say his mother was a slave who was impregnated by her master, then sold away. Some say his mother was a prostitute and his father was one of her clients. Some say his mother was a slave whose owner prostituted her for profit. Despite his unknown paternal lineage, Ziyad ibn Abihi obtained fairly high government positions. This was a remarkable achievement considering how important lineage and tribal nobility were in Arabia. Driven by ambition and the need to overcome his scandalous background, Ziyad ibn Abihi worked his way up through the governmental bureaucracies of Caliphs Omar, Uthman, and Ali. 
He started out as a scribe, and by the time the fighting broke out between Ali and Muawiyah, he was the finance minister for Basra under Ibn Abbas. Towards the end of Ali's reign, a rebellion broke out in Fars in eastern Persia. Based on Ibn Abbas's recommendation, Ali made Ziad the governor of Fars with orders to quell the rebellion. Ziad's performance was legendary. Using a combination of bribes, brutality, and diplomacy, he managed to put down the rebellion in a matter of weeks. Ziad even strengthened Ali's position in Fars by reinforcing the main fortress and resuming the flow of tax income back to Kufa. Ziad in Persia After Muawiyah captured Iraq, he began dismantling Ali's governmental apparatus. He was not too keen on having Ali's die-hard supporters working in his government. But Ziad ibn Abihi did not step down immediately. When Muawiyah's forces moved in to occupy Kufa and Basra, Ziad remained in his secure fortress in Persia. Muawiyah sent Murida ibn Shu'bah, the governor of Kufa, to convince Ziad to pledge allegiance. Murida pleaded with Ziad and promised him safe passage to Damascus. But Ziad would not budge. Ziad knew the caliph could send an army to flush him out, but that would not have been easy. Ziad's fortress was hidden deep within the Zagros Mountains over 300 miles from Basra. Muawiyah would have to send thousands of soldiers through unfriendly territory and inhospitable terrain. For the time being, Ziad was untouchable. But his family was not. Ziad received a letter from Muawiyah's general, Busur ibn Abi Arta, that his three sons had been imprisoned. Busur was notorious for hunting down and killing those suspected of being involved with Uthman's death. Respond to Amir al-Mu'mineen, Busur's letter said, or I will kill your children. He gave Ziad a two-week deadline. Ziad remained cool despite the threat. That is exactly what I'd expect from the son of the Eater of Livers, he wrote back. This was a reference to Hind, Muawiyah's mother. During the Battle of Badr, the first major conflict between the Muslims of Medina and the pagan Quraysh of Mecca, the Prophet's uncle, Hamza, killed three members of Hind's family. To avenge their death, she hired an Abyssinian slave to kill Hamza the next time they met in battle. In return for killing Hamza, she promised the slave his freedom and gold jewelry. A year later, Muawiyah's father, Abu Sufyan, led an army to Medina in the Battle of Uhud. The Abyssinian slave fulfilled his duty and drove a spear through Hamza's chest, impaling him to the ground and killing him. After the battle was over, Hin split open Hamza's belly, extracted his liver, and took three bites. Ziad and Muawiyah Ziad ibn Abihi sent his brother racing to Damascus. He made the ten-day trip in seven days, wearing out two horses in the process. This is not what we gave Ba'a to you for, Ziyad's brother told Muawiyah when they met. The people did not give you their allegiance so you could kill children? Muawiyah reluctantly agreed and wrote a letter ordering Busra to release Ziyad's children. 
Ziad's brother hurried back to Iraq with Muawiyah's orders, arriving just minutes before Busra was to kill them. Ziad knew Muawiyah had not given up and instructed his nephew, a young man named Abdurrahman, to hide his wealth. Sure enough, Ziad soon received word that Abdurrahman had been arrested by Murida ibn Shu'bah. At first, Murida tried talking Abdurrahman into revealing the location of Ziad's wealth. When that didn't work, Muawiyah ordered him to use enhanced interrogation techniques. Today, we call that torture. Murida covered Abdurrahman's face with a silk cloth and poured water over it until the young man passed out. Murida revived him, asked him again about Ziad's money, and when he didn't get an answer, went back to waterboarding him. Abdurrahman passed out three times before Murida was convinced that he did not know anything. Ziad held out against Muawiyah for nearly two years. Finally, Muawiyah wrote him a letter promising safe passage if they could just talk. Why are you making things harder for yourself? The letter read, Come to Damascus so we can go over your finances. If you want to join our side, then fine, do so. If not, you'll be allowed to return to your fortress. Ziad relented and made the long journey to Damascus to meet with Muawiyah. They wound up talking about much more than finances. Muawiyah was actually interviewing Ziad for a job. Ziad could tell the mood had changed and adjusted his attitude accordingly. He began addressing Muawiyah as Amir al-Mu'minin and even agreed to turn over his wealth. He then asked for permission to settle in Kufa. Satisfied, Muawiyah agreed. In Kufa, Ziad was one of many out-of-work former government officials from Ali's caliphate. Most of his wealth had been confiscated and he held no status or authority. Like many others from Ali's government, he was forced to pray in congregation at the masjid every evening. This allowed the governor, Murida ibn Shubba, to keep an eye on them. There was one major difference between Ziad and the others. He had no problem switching allegiances to Muawiyah. Ziad in Basra There were many reasons why Muawiyah wanted Ziad to take over in Basra. Ziad was familiar with Basra having worked there for Omar, Othman, and Ali. Ziad was not from Banu Hashim, Ali's clan, so he was much more trustworthy. Ziad had proven his ability to handle the rebellions and the Khawarij. Still, Muawiyah was not sure if Ziad would be accepted in Basra. It was bad enough that many would see him as a traitor for switching sides. But then there was also the issue of Ziad's lineage. Would people respect a man who was known as the son of his father? Muawiyah figured a way around that obstacle. In 44 AH, with Ziad's approval, Muawiyah announced that Ziad was his half-brother. Together, they concocted a story that Muawiyah's father, Abu Sufyan, had fathered Ziad outside of wedlock before accepting Islam. Therefore, he should be known as Ziyad ibn Abi Sufyan. The ruse fooled no one. The Banu Umayyah were furious that Muawiyah would disgrace their family for political gain. 
it was even worse that his father was not alive to defend himself. Later scholars would criticize Muawiyah for defiling his father's legacy with this farce. Behind his back, Ziad was still referred to as either the son of his father or the son of Sumeya. But for the time being, it served the purpose that Muawiyah needed. In Jumada 45 AH, that is July 665, Ziad ibn Abihi became Muawiyah's governor of Basra. Upon becoming governor, Ziad delivered a speech laying out his plan to bring stability to Basra. Even when translated into English, his exceptional oratory skills shine through. What follows is an excerpt from that speech. All praises to Allah for his virtues and blessings. The terrible things which the bold among you commit and the wise among you allow are extreme ignorance. The young grow up with these crimes and the old do not refrain from them. It is as if you did not hear the verses of Allah nor read his book, nor heard of his reward for the obedient, nor heard of his punishment for the disobedient. You have innovated things which were never here before. You frequent the brothels and allow the strong to usurp the weak. You do not restrain the robbers from prowling at night, nor prevent them from attacking by day. You have put kinship before slam. You give excuses to yourselves and you pardon the thief. Beware of night prowling, for I will shed the night prowler's blood. Beware of the cause of the days of ignorance, for I will cut out the tongues of those who call to it. You have invented new crimes, and we have invented new punishments for every crime. Whoever drowns someone, then I will drown him. Whoever burns someone, then I will burn him. Whoever breaks into a house, then I will break into his heart. Whoever digs up a grave, then I will bury him alive. Spare me your hands and your tongues, and I will spare you my hand and my harm. You are free to hate me, but do not do so openly. We have become your rulers and protectors. We rule you by the authority of Allah which he has given us. Therefore, you owe us your obedience, and we owe you justice. Pray to Allah for the righteousness of your rulers. They set the example, and so long as you are righteous, then they will be righteous. By Allah, I have many potential victims from among you. Beware, lest you become one of them. Ziad ibn Abihi was true to his word. Over the next three years, Ziad would use violence, bribery, and his terrifying police force, the Shurta, to bring order to Basra. Under Ziad, the Shurta in Basra had a force of 4,000 men. By comparison, the city of Atlanta today, in 2017, only has 2,000 police officers. The Shurta were Ziad's eyes and ears. Nothing happened in Basra except Ziad knew about it. He arrested people on mere suspicion and punished just to set an example. 
When he walked the streets of Basra, he was accompanied by 500 armed guards carrying clubs, swords, and sticks. But violence was not his only weapon. He got the nobility and the religious elite of Basra on his side by hiring hundreds of Islamic scholars and Sahaba. They served as advisors, judges, and sub-governors. Before Ziad came to Basra, the knights were dangerous because of the criminal element. Now, it was dangerous for a different reason. Ziad would delay the night prayer until very late, then order the imam to recite the longest chapters from the Qur'an. When the prayer was finished, the shurta would disperse through the city looking to see who was not at the masjid. Anyone they caught was killed on the spot. They were not killed because they did not pray at the masjid. They were killed because the Khawadas used to plot the rebellions during the night prayers and Ziad wanted to make sure that could not happen. One night, the shurta came across a Bedouin who happened to be traveling through Basra. He was brought before Ziad and questioned as to why he was not at the prayer. I, I arrived at, at night with my camel, but I had no place to secure her, the Bedouin stammered. I, I was waiting for the morning to come when the police arrested me. By Allah, replied Ziad, I believe you are telling the truth. But your death will set a good example for everyone else. The Bedouin was dragged away and beheaded. Ziad was especially harsh on the Khawarij. Just before he became governor, two men from Basra began a rebellion proclaiming, Let the Qur'an decide! This was the original slogan of the Khawarij during Ali's time. They based their rebellion in Ahwaz about 75 miles northeast of Basra. But after hearing of Ziad's policies, they thought it best to abandon their plans. One rebel returned to the city and hid, but it wasn't long before Ziad's policemen flushed him out. The rebel was killed in his home and his body nailed to the door. Ziad was a little more merciful with the second rebel. The man was allowed to return to Basra, but was warned to never leave the city. One night, Ziad was informed the former rebel did not spend the night in his house. The next morning, the man was arrested and quickly executed. Later, Ziad ordered the people of Basra to assist in hunting down the Khawarij. He warned that if they did not help, no one would receive their government stipends for an entire year. This began a mass persecution of anyone suspected of being Khawarij. Khawadij and Khawadij sympathizers were hunted down and killed by the hundreds. There was one instance when the people of Basra did stand up to Ziad. He once gave an order to execute all of the Zoroastrian priests living in Basra and destroy their temples. Surprisingly, his policemen were blocked by Muslim citizens demanding he respect their tradition of tolerance. Ziad's brutal methods worked. People began leaving their doors unlocked. If something was dropped in the street, no one would dare touch it. The people stopped being afraid of crime and became afraid of the government. With stability came prosperity. Basra's tax revenue increased, trade improved, and rebellion disappeared. Muawi was so pleased with Ziad's performance, he added Oman and Bahrain to his territory. 
When Basra had stabilized, Ziad began expanding his territory by launching invasions into Central Asia. In 47 AH, three years after becoming governor, Ziad sent armies into Ghor and Kabul in modern-day Afghanistan. He also sent armies north into Bukhara and Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan. Unrest in Kufa Things were different in Kufa where the Sahaba Murida ibn Shu'ba was the governor. Though he was strict and swift with justice, Murida's administration was not marked by the fear and brutality seen in Basra. Like most of Muawiyah's officials, Murida ibn Shu'ba ended each sermon by praising Uthman and cursing his killers. This cursing would often lead to condemnation of Ali ibn Abi Talib as well. This did not sit well with everyone. Hujr ibn Adi had been a commander in Ali's army and was totally devoted to him. He believed the caliphate should have stayed with Ali's family. This marks the early stages of the Shiite belief that the caliphate was hereditary and should stay with the Ahlul Bayt or the people of the house. However, it should be understood that Hujr ibn Adi wasn't a Shiite like we know today. He was a Sahaba who simply felt Ali was the true caliph. When Ali's son Hassan abdicated, Hujr ibn Adi gave the bayah to Muawiyah. Though he preferred the caliphate remain with Ahlul Bayt, he tolerated Muawiyah and obeyed the leadership. But Hujr ibn Adi would not tolerate anyone cursing Ali. It was one thing to accept defeat, but quite another to curse the Prophet's cousin and son-in-law. When Murida began condemning Ali, Hujr shouted at him from the audience. Old man, he cried, fix our rations and stipends. That is your job as governor. We are not here to listen to you curse Ali and praise the criminals. Others joined in and before long, Morita was engaged in a shouting match with the audience. I am the governor, he yelled at them. Fear the regime. Fear its wrath and power. The fury of the regime can destroy you many times over. Angry, Morita descended from the pulpit, stormed out of the masjid, and returned to his house. He was met by some of his advisors who were not happy. They felt he should have taken a firmer stance against Hujr ibn Adi. Why do you tolerate Hujr's insolence? They asked him. It undermines your authority, and if Maui ever finds out, he will not be pleased. But Murida ibn Shu'ba brushed their concerns aside. I have already killed him, he said. Another governor will take over after me, and Hujr will treat that man like he treated me, and he will be punished in the worst way. Murida could sense the end of his life coming soon. My time draws near, he continued, and I do not want to end it by killing the noble people of this city. Later that year, a terrible plague swept through Kufa, killing hundreds. As the epidemic intensified, Murida ibn Shu'ba fled the city. After the disease had burned itself out, he returned home hoping the worst had passed. Unfortunately, Murida still contracted the sickness and died in Sha'ban 50 AH or September 670. After Murida's death, Muawiyah wrote a letter to Ziad ordering him to take over Kufa as well. 
This unprecedented move made Ziad ibn Abihi the second most powerful man in the empire. The territory that Ziad now governed was equal to almost half of the Muslim empire. That was an area covering seven modern nations. If anyone thought the additional responsibility would soften Ziad, they were sorely mistaken. In his first public address in Kufa, he ascended the pulpit and began praising the people of the city. When I was ordered to come to Kufa, I was thinking about bringing 2,000 soldiers with me. Then I remembered that you are people of truth who reject falsehood. So I only came with my family. Suddenly, a shower of small pebbles was hurled at him. This was followed by more stones and pebbles as the people in the audience heckled and pelted him. Ziad remained cool and quietly sat down as the pebbles and stones continued to fly his way. When they died down, he ordered his guards to lock the doors to the masjid. Then he stood, placed a chair by the door, sat down again and said, I want every one of you to grab the hand of the man who was sitting next to you. And don't you dare say you don't know who was sitting next to you. He called the audience members up in groups of four. He ordered them to come forward and swear to Allah that none of them had thrown pebbles at him. Those that swore were allowed to leave. Those that did not were told to sit back down. By the time everyone had been questioned, there were 80 men left in the mosque. Ziad ordered his guards to chop off their hands. By Allah, one man said about Ziad, we never accused him of lying. Whether he promised us good or evil, he always did it. It wasn't long before Ziad ibn Abihi and Hujr ibn Adi clashed. Like Murira before him, Ziad used to praise Uthman and curse Ali ibn Abi Talib after giving a speech. And just like Murira, Hujr ibn Adi began shouting at him when that happened. By now, Hujr's supporters had grown in size and courage. And in typical Ziad fashion, his response was cool and eloquent. Injustice and transgression have fatal consequences. These people, he said, pointing at Hujr and his group, have gathered for evil purposes. They feel safe with me, so they've taken liberties with me. By Allah, if you do not stop, I will cure you with your own medicine. Be careful, Hujr. You have invited a wolf for dinner. Hujr ibn Adi would learn that wolves make terrible dinner guests. Okay, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that interesting, engaging, entertaining, and all that good stuff. All right, as uh, you may have noticed, some of the stories discussed in today's episode were fairly shocking. The brutality of some of the Muslim rulers were was kind of rough, and uh, it doesn't get much better going forward. As I mentioned earlier, um, all these stories do not always have a happy ending. Uh, the good guys don't always win or the quote unquote good guys don't always win. The, but this is what we have. And the um, 
the information that I relate to you comes from Tariq Tabari and Tabari, the Imam who wrote it. Um, he did live roughly 150 years after these events, and so he was also writing from a slightly biased point of view. At least many people think he was. Still, you know. I don't think it's all not true. I think most of it is true, and Allah knows best ultimately. It is what it is. All right, well, just want to touch on a few things here before we wrap up. I did uh, discuss a few uh, points of the Sharia in the, today's episode, particularly about the jizya and the hudud, the amputation of hands for stealing. In general, I do try to produce, or not produce, I do try to um, discuss different aspects of a certain idea. But bear in mind that this is not a show about fiqh or sharia. This is not about um, the the fundamentals of uh, fiqh and how we come to Islamic law. So it's not, I don't consider it my duty to give you every single point of view available and nor to provide you the proof for everything I say as far as uh, Sharia or Fiqh is concerned. I try to keep it to a bare minimum, but try to at least throw in a few bits and pieces from different points of view. But I think it's fairly obvious from my presentation that I kind of lean towards towards a more um, easygoing interpretation of some of the um, uh, Hudud, one that would probably give the perpetrator as much leeway as possible before applying the hudud i would have probably have been like the um the governor abdullah ibn amir who didn't like amputating people's hands i would have probably have been like that so i i do try to present different aspects of these um laws in islam to try to uh, help people understand that the way one group of people applies that punishment is not indicative of the way all muslims view it and you may disagree disagree with my presentation as well. That is fine. Please don't ask me to give you my proofs. I'm not going to do all that. That's not what this show is about. But just bear in mind that Islam is over 1,000 years old. Over 1,000 years old with thousands upon thousands of scholars from all over the world, both male and female. And all of them have had different opinions about virtually every single aspect of Islam, everyone is not going to agree with you. So please don't ask me to provide proof. If you disagree with, you know, something I said about the Sharia, fine. It's, I mean, I, I, I didn't just make it up. I, I do have um, some evidence behind it, but just keep in mind, I'm not going to constantly try to provide proof for everyone who disagrees with every single thing that I say. Anyway, I'm going to leave that alone. Uh, we're going to wrap this up, inshallah. Today's um, podcast of the week, today's Muslim, well, this week's Islamic podcast of the week, I guess that's how I want to say it, it will be the Column Podcast produced by Column Institute. This uh, Column Institute is a big seminary, um, U.S.-based seminary Islamic program, Islamic seminary program. Um, I think they're based out of Dallas, I believe. 
Uh, but you know they're very fairly popular. Uh, you probably heard of some of the scholars, like Abdul Nasser Jengda and Abdul Rahman Murphy, and a couple of others. These are fairly famous people. But anyway, they produce a podcast, and their podcast is really just repurposing of their lecture series, which is okay. That's you know still a podcast, but I find it very interesting, and much of what they discuss crosses what we discuss here as well. It is um, they're often talk about Islam, Islamic history and Sira and the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa and the different companions. And so some of that stuff uh, crosses into what we're doing. So I find a lot of their information very enjoyable. Yes, there's some marketing in their material and their podcasting, but hey, it is what it is. There's no problem with me. So I'm going to leave you with a, a clip at the end of the show and there will be links in the show notes. Speaking of which, the show notes for this episode will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ziyad, Z-I-Y-A-D, or maybe Z-I-Y-A-D if you're Canadian. But uh, go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ziyad for the show notes. You will get a transcript of the show, um, links to my social media platform, a link to Column Podcast, which is the podcast of the week, and finally, a link to support the show at Patreon, which is how this show is carried forward, okay? So you can support the show at patreon.com slash Islamic History. And if you don't remember it, don't worry about it. Just go to the show notes, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Ziad. There'll be links to the Patreon site there. So we are going to wrap this up now with a uh, short clip from Colum Podcast. This is about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Particularly, I believe it's about his the time he uh, conquered Mecca and his um, entrance into Mecca, basically. So, if you want to hear the rest of it, just follow the links in the show notes. So you can hear the whole thing from Colum Podcast. And with that, inshallah, we will meet next time, which should be next week, inshallah. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asiratun Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. In the last few sessions, we've been talking uh, extensively about one of the most... Um, one of the biggest events of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, one of the most noteworthy events of the seerah, and that is the conquest of Mecca, Fathu Mecca, the opening of the city of Mecca. And what we've talked about so far is not only obviously the events that led up to that uh, significant monumental occurrence, but we also talked about the Prophet Sallallahu preparation in that regard. We talked about some of the events that unfolded prior to the conquest of Mecca. We also talked about the Prophet Sallallahu journey on the way to Mecca and how when he stopped outside of Mecca, the Prophet Sallallahu was met with, uh, was met by some of the leadership of the Quraysh who accepted Islam at that time and brokered a deal to basically ensure the protection and the safety and the security of the people of Mecca. What we're going to be talking about today is the Prophet ﷺ entering into the city of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ, along with the 12,000 Muslims that were with the Prophet ﷺ, they're entering into the city of Mecca. 
There are many narrations which kind of describe just the appearance of the Prophet ﷺ when he was entering the city of Mecca. And that's what I'd like to focus on first. And then as we proceed forward, I'll basically be mentioning about three different things. The Prophet ﷺ, his appearance, his demeanor, his uh, character. And then the second thing that we'll talk about is the Prophet ﷺ, 